Well, good morning. This is Lou Rockwell, and what an honor to have as our guest this morning, Judge John V. Denson. Judge Denson is not only a, an important lawyer in Alabama and nationally, but uh, a revisionist historian. His book, A Century of War, is a tremendous introduction to the crimes of Lincoln, Wilson, and Franklin Roosevelt. His edited book, The Cost of War, and uh, Reassessing the Presidency are also very important works. But one of the things we love about John Denson is he's constantly reading and finding new books. I mean, he it's just an astounding, wonderful thing. And today he's come to us with two new books on the origins of World War I that uh, tell a different story from the normal, the normal uh, stuff we're told. So Judge Denson, uh, tell us about these books and their authors and why they're important. Lou, I've brought you some more hidden history. <laughs> I, I came uh, earlier with another book by the name of Hidden History. Great book, too, yes. And uh, this is a book, uh, the title is Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War. And the authors are Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor, and they're from Scotland. And uh, they spent about uh, 10 years doing the research for these two books. This, this one was published in uh, 2013. And the second book has just come out in the last couple of months. And I have a first edition here in paperback, and it's uh, called the Prolonging the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended World War I by Three and a Half Years. Three and a Half Years. So it, it brings up a lot of new material. I, uh, I just looking here uh, back, it says uh, that everything that you've learned about who started World War I is, uh, is probably wrong. <laughs> to me, you know, it's, it's uh, almost like a, a, a lawsuit where you're the judge and you got lawyers submitting two different briefs. And uh, we're talking about one event, the First World War, and we got one group that uh, says uh, Germany is entirely at fault. And exhibit A is the Versailles Treaty. You know, Germany was guilty. And these authors say that's not true at all, that the guilty party is, is the, the British started it. And uh, they started it for a specific purpose. And uh, the only country standing in the way of them creating a new world order was Germany. So that's the aim of the starter is to show how this group, a secret elite group, started World War I. The inspiration, I guess you would call it, or the reason they uh, got into this were the earlier works of uh, Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley wrote two books about World War I, and he went into World War II also. But uh, the first book uh, Carol Quigley wrote was called The Anglo-American Establishment, and that was from World War I up through 1947. It, he finished writing it in 1949. And it told about this secret Anglo-American group that was put together for the purpose of creating a new world order. And they couldn't find a publisher for that one. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> so uh, he did 10 years of research and toned it down some and wrote Tragedy and Hope. And uh, this is the first book that I read that uh, indicated there was some secret society that was uh, causing things to happen. This man was a professor. He taught at Harvard and he taught at Georgetown. He was a he did. very important guy. Very uh, accomplished historian. He taught at Georgetown. He uh, had a student by the name of Bill Clinton 
And uh, when Clinton gave his acceptance speech, uh, the first acceptance speech, he gave credit to Carol Quigley for being the most important man that uh, affected his thinking. And I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a Rhodes Scholar. So that was part of this group's plan, was to create the uh, Rhodes Scholarships and bring Americans uh, to Oxford. So uh, let me read the... Uh, this is a, something I've quoted a lot of times when I re it came out uh, of the book Tragedy and Hope. And uh, it gives you the indication that it is such a group that isn't influential that's causing uh, things to happen. Here's what Quigley wrote. There does exist and has existed for generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical rights believe the Communist Act. In fact, this network which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years to study their secret documents. So uh, here's a very uh, accomplished uh, historian. I don't know what purpose they had him uh, doing this, but uh, they obviously trusted him to look at their secret documents that nobody else was able to see on the outside. He says, uh, I have no aversion to it or to its uh, aims, and here for much of my life has been close to it and many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, notably its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. And I believe in that its role in history is so significant that it needs to be known. So, you know, here's this, uh, this really fascinated me. Uh, you know, it's never made much sense to me how you get a world war going over the assassination of an archduke in Austria. I mean, assassinations of political leaders and so forth. And what it had to do with England, you know. So um, anyway, the authors of these two new books, uh, Hidden History and The uh, Prolonging, they go into uh, a lot of Carol Quigley's um, book. They rely on that. In each of these two new books, chapter one is on the, uh, how this all originated. So... Um, it all starts in 1870 with a uh, professor, John Ruskin, at Oxford. And he had two uh, students that were a major part of this secret elite group, Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner. And Alfred Milner ends up being with the whole group all the way up through uh, uh, World War II. And he's sort of the quarterback of the group. But... Um, Cecil Rhodes took down notes what John Ruskin said and, and uh, recruited a group. And um, both uh, Rhodes and Milner went to South Africa. And um, the Dutch had settled that uh, area down there uh, as farmers. And uh, the group that Rhodes put together started the Boer War. And it's one of the most brutal wars in history, and the British were criticized a lot for it because these were farmers on this land down there. That land happened to contain the world's <laughs> best supply of gold and diamonds. 
So this group uh, took over that, and you know, the country of Rhodesia is named for Cecil Rhodes. And um, he wrote something like seven wills, and one of them talked about the secret group, but then they pointed out that if you, if you put that in a will, it's going to be a public document. So he took that out. But he made Milton the trustee for his uh, seventh will, and that's when he created his Rhodes Scholarships. And um, the idea of Ruskin that these people adopted it, and I don't know whether this was just a cover or whether they really believe this, but uh, Ruskin thought that the British Empire was the greatest political organization it had ever been. And it was created by the most intelligent, wealthy people, and that uh, that needed to be uh, expanded into reclaiming America as part of the Anglo-American establishment or secret elite. So uh, that's the way they got started. And uh, they put together both of these, uh, these books, Hidden History and Prolonging the Agony, contain a diagram of who exactly these people are. It shows you the inner circle, a very small inner circle of about seven people, uh, Lord Rothschild, and uh, others that uh, international bankers that uh, have a tendency to loan money for purposes of war. So uh, the thing about going back to tragedy and hope, uh, the tragedy that Quigley talked about was that uh, this group undoubtedly had a, a terrible effect on the 20th century by causing World War I and World War II. But the hope is that people will recognize that um, Wars and depressions are not natural events like an eruption of a volcano or an earthquake. They're man-made. And the way to end war in the future is to learn from the mistakes. And that was his hope that this, this would help us uh, do that. But he never abandoned, Quigley never abandoned his support of the idea of the secret elite that they wanted a new world order. Let me uh, point out that uh, this book, Hidden History, has 51 pages of footnotes. And the way I read it, I kept a marker there, and almost every sentence almost contains a fact with a footnote. And I go back to the footnotes and uh, uh, read, and, and sometimes the footnotes tell you a whole lot more than the, than the text. But the sources they went to are, are phenomenal, uh, went all over the world. And a lot of our professors uh, established professors furnished them information and sources and told them where to look as long as they didn't use their names. <laughs> These guys may want tenure or something, and so they don't want to be associated with this kind of revisionism. Uh, but then the other one, uh, prolonging the agony, has about 35 pages of footnotes, but each one has this diagram, so it's useful when you read these books to uh, use that diagram and see who these people are and what section that they controlled. In other words, they had to control the academia, which was Oxford, uh, the writing of the history. They controlled the writing of the history. Uh, they had to control the politics. They had uh, Balfour uh, is related. Uh, his mother was a member of the Cecil family, which has been the power behind the throne forever. And uh, with the Rothschilds, uh, Lord Rothschild was a member and uh, financed uh, many wars. International banking, uh, the news media, the people that own the, the major newspapers were part of it. So you controlled uh, the academia, the history, the politics, and um, the international financing. J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller eventually became uh, members uh, of the group. And um, 
talking about getting into World War One, they recognized that uh, they were going to have to have America in the war eventually. So they uh, decided they needed a, a central bank in America. And um, this group, uh, as we all know from Jekyll Island, the Jekyll Island, the book about it, they went secretly to Jekyll Island and created this uh, Federal Reserve. And the first bill was opposed by President Taft. He said that they need more government control. This is a bunch of private individuals. So they had to get rid of Taft. So they ran Teddy Roosevelt and uh, sent a fellow named Colonel House over to promote a very obscure uh, politician named Woodrow Wilson, got him elected to uh, New Jersey governorship and then to the presidency. And he was in full agreement with this group and wanted to create the Federal Reserve and get America into the war. So here's their plan of how to proceed. The only way they could create this new world order with the English-speaking hierarchy in control was to get rid of Germany. Germany had um, progressed to the point economically and in other, in other ways to uh, even surpass the British Empire in some ways and was a real threat to their idea of English-speaking Anglo-Saxon world government. So they planned this war, uh, and they knew that they had to get Russia and France and their land armies in to squeeze Germany. And uh, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes talking to Russia and France back as, as early as 1904 about the war. Wow. None of this was known to the, uh, to the parliament. Uh, this is all secretly done. So they promised the Russians uh, that— uh, you know, you get into this war, and uh, you could get uh, Constantinople and get your uh, warm water port and get into the Mediterranean, when in reality, they never intended for Russia to be successful in that. They were going to let Russia get in the war and help them, but they were going to prevent Russia from achieving that goal. And they talked to France about, you can get Alsace and Lorraine back. And uh, so that was the end carried at the end of the uh, story for these two countries. So they're waiting for a spark that they could fan the flames and get the war going. And it, it was an incident in Morocco uh, that looked promising, but uh, it turned out to be the Germans didn't take the bait. But when the Archduke of uh, Austria was uh, assassinated, they weren't a part of the plot to assassinate, but they took that spark and fan the flame by putting their uh, representatives into the inside of the Austrian uh, government and the decisions that were made, as well as in Serbia, to make sure that they did not settle that incident. And the demand that Austria made was, uh, we want to come into Serbia and make our own investigation. And the Serbians were instructed not to agree to that. And the Kaiser had uh, indicated to Austrians that he, he would support them. And then when he saw how bad it was getting, he tried to talk them out of the, of the conditions. But uh, they went on in Austria, then declares war. So the um, Edward, who became Edward the, the Seventh, uh, was, of course, related to the uh, Tsar. He was considered a ne'er-do-well by Victoria, and she had him on a very strict allowance. And uh, But he was traveling around ostensibly just uh, going on pleasure trips, but Lord Rothschild created an unlimited expense account for him, and uh, he would talk to heads of government 
And so the, the Russians were convinced that they needed to, to mobilize and uh, go to war. So then uh, the treaty with France then brought France in. So Russia and France mobilized before Germany ever did anything. And then finally Germany had to protect itself. So that's how they got World War I started, was to use that uh, incident of the Archduke as, a, as the spark but they had all these other plans made to get the war going. John, what about the Lusitania? Yeah, they had to had to get America in. So the, the Lusitania is a, a major thing. Of course, Winston Churchill was involved there. He made it uh, make sure that he was not in England at the time, but all of this was planned in advance. And um, the Lusitania was built... Uh, to have uh, secret compartments to uh, store things in. And it was, uh, it was financed uh, partly by the British government with the understanding that in time of war, they could control the Lusitania. But it was still a passenger ship. And the thing that I learned new out of the, this book, was one of these books, is that the, uh, the true manifest that showed truly what was in the Lusitania was a huge supply of explosives that were being taken to, to Britain. And that man manifest was found in the presidential library of Franklin Roosevelt in, huh. in 2012. And the, the false manifest that was used at the customs just showed a few bullets were stored there, nothing to uh, you know worry anybody. But these compartments, those secret compartments, were designed just for that purpose. And so... Um, as we know, uh, Secretary of State tried to get Wilson to warn people not to be on the Lusitania. He refused to give the warning because he was, uh, the whole plan was to use that to get America in. But America was so much against getting in that didn't do the trick. But uh, it shows you sort of a Pearl Harbor deal where you're trying to provoke something to get the America into the war. So that was an important part of it. I was going to read a, a little bit of section on... Uh, from Hidden History, uh, this is page 12, it says, uh, what this book sets out to prove is that unscrupulous men whose roots and origins were in Britain sought a war to crush Germany and orchestrated events in order to bring this about. 1914 is generally considered as a starting point for the disaster that followed, but the crucial decision led to war had been taken many years before. So this was in 1904? Right. Yeah. It says, continuing here, the, the horror of the British concentration camps in uh, South Africa, where 20,000 children died, was conveniently glossed over. The devastating loss of generation in World War, for which these men were deliberately responsible, has been glorified by the lie that they died for freedom and civilization. This book focuses on how a cabal of international bankers, industrious, and their political agents successfully used war to destroy the Boer Republic and then Germany, and they were never called to account for it. No war guilt there. Right. This is uh, on page 14 of the Introduction to Hidden History. It says, uh, the members of this secret elite were only too well aware that Germany was rapidly beginning to overtake Britain in all areas of knowledge and science, industry and commerce. They also considered Germany to be the cuckoo in the empire's nest, African nest, and were concerned about it growing, its growing influence in Turkey. 
the Balkans and the Middle East. They set out to ditch the cuckoo. The secret elite were influenced by the philosophy of the 19th century Oxford professor John Ruskin, whose concept was built on the belief in the superiority and the authority of the English ruling classes acting in the best interest of their inferiors. And they professed that what they intended for the good of mankind and for civilization, a civilization that they would control, approve, manage, and make profitable, for they were prepared to do what was necessary. They would make war for civilization, slaughter millions in the name of civilization. Wrapped in the great banner of civilization, this became a, a secret society like none other before it. Not only did it have the backing of the privileged and the wealthy, but it was also protected from criticism and hidden beneath a shroud of altruism over the world and for its own good, save the world from itself. So uh, that uh, that shows you how the war got going. The uh, the second book was uh, published by another publisher. <laughs> the Random House brought, bought the publisher that did Hidden History, and Random House didn't uh, agree they wanted to do the second volume. You have to wonder if they bought the publisher <clears throat> for that reason. You would think so. So they went to another publisher, and that's why this book didn't come out until this year, prolonging the agony of the war. But they've got two quotes here that really uh, show the uh, reason for prolonging the war. Uh, in other words, in, by 1915, it looked like uh, there was just a stalemate. There was no way that either side was going to win. Well, that's the worst thing that could happen for this group because, number one, the international bankers needed to make more money for a long war, and this group needed to smash Germany. They didn't need to leave Germany in power. So the first... Uh, Quotation is from uh, Smedley Butler's great book called War is a Racket. He says that the quote is at the start of the book says, War is a racket. It always has been. It's possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is only one international in scope. It is only one in which the people are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group know what it's about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of a war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, which he was involved with, he was a major general in the United States Marines. He wrote this immediately after the war. He said in World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the war. That many admitted their, their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. <laughs> How many other war millionaires falsified their late returns, no one knows. So he, he points out what this book is about prolonging the war in order to make money. Uh, secondly, the quote is from a soldier, a famous soldier and a poet named Siegfried Sansun. And he wrote this a year before the war ended to his uh, commanding officer. I mean, this is uh, would be called, I guess, treason uh, today. But he says, uh, uh, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. 
I believe that the war upon which I entered as a war of defense and liberation has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I have seen and endured the sufferings of the troops, and I am no longer willing to be a party or prolonging this suffrage for that end which I believe to be evil and unjust. I don't know what they did to him, but he was still famous after the war. Uh, he had an important reputation as a poet. Yeah. So my guess is that uh, gave him strength that they couldn't just crush him. Right. So how do they get, uh, they don't want Russia to uh, uh, get the uh, Dardanelles and Constantinople. So they, they have a plan for that. But the Russians had complained that Britain wasn't doing enough in the war and the Russians were taking the, the, the big losses. So the plot was to have a suicide war in Gallipoli to prove to the Russians that the British were really trying. So it was a planned failure, planned by Churchill, that they fought in uh, Gallipoli and they were defeated. And that was to prove to keep the Russians in. The way they got the Russians out is they financed uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia with the understanding that the Bolsheviks would take over, that Russia would get out. So the financing for the Bolshevik Revolution came from these people. Uh, I've read many times before about Jacob Schiff sending uh, huge sums of money you know, to the Bolsheviks to get the revolution going. And then I suppose they, they probably felt uh, that they could turn on and off the money and they could defeat the Bolsheviks when they needed to. But uh, anyway, that's how they got Russia out, but they had to bring America in. So the Lusitania and other uh, things, the submarine warfare excuse, was brought to uh, bring America in, and, and, that, and that had to bring the smashing of Germany. And that's why you get to the Versailles Treaty, and uh, Germany is uh, not a part of any of the negotiations. And after six months, they uh, come to the conclusion that the war is completely the fault of Germany. And you and I have talked about this before, and this has been uh, recorded in several books, that John Foster Dulles went, and his brother Allen went to World War I peace conference with their uncle, Secretary of State Lansing, and they let John Foster compose the War Guilt Clause. I think the number is Part 231 or something of the treaty, holding Germany completely liable. And um, Germany had no role in, in getting that done. So uh, they accomplished their purpose of, uh, of smashing Germany with almost uh, uh, ruining Western civilization as far as uh, World War One and the effect that it had. And Quigley admits that, that this group uh, had great intentions. This world government was going to eliminate war. And uh, just have a lot of wars in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and, uh, and the whole thing shows you that uh, that wars can be caused by groups that you are not aware that uh, exist and that strings are being pulled by people behind the scenes. And wars uh, can be avoided, I think, by uh, honesty and, uh, and transparency and everything that uh, this group was doing. They had Balfour, uh, they had uh, Lord George Churchill, but they were not informing the whole war, uh, the parliament, what was going on. And all this was being done by a few select, very powerful people. So. Uh, these are two uh, really great books. Uh, I recommend them, and I recommend you read each sentence and, 
And uh, if you don't, uh, you, the, people are necessarily going to say this is conspiracy theory. And these authors realize that and say this isn't conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy fact. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to prove about the existence of this group further is that uh, uh, David Rockefeller, uh, in his memoirs of 2002, uh, proudly claimed his family, he and his family have been a part of this group from the beginning and that he fully supported this new world order. So it, this is not some mystery group. Uh, you've got Quigley, who was uh, right in the middle of it, um, studying it, seeing that secret dockage. You've got David Rockefeller admitting that it exists. And at an earlier Bilderberger meeting in, I think, 1991, he thanked the Washington Post and New York Times for the fact they never revealed that this group existed. And he said that uh, they'd never been able to accomplish all they had done if it had been exposed by the news media. So there's been no secret as far as Rockefeller. I don't know of anybody else that's talked about the group other than Quigley and Rockefeller. But uh, I think it's a very important uh, thing for for history to reflect the truth. And that, uh, it's my theory that wars can be avoided if uh, if we know the truth. It's not hidden from us by a secret, powerful group like this. John, thanks a million for talking to us about these important books. We'll, of course, link to them in the podcast and to the other books you discussed, the Quigley books. This is just such important information for us to have because they're constantly ginning up new wars. This is not something that ended in uh, 1917 or whatever. So it's, it's, uh, it's a constant thing. They make a gazillion dollars out of it. They live on blood. They're, they're like vampires. So thank you for exposing them. Let me give you one personal experience before we Please, sign off. Yes. Uh, about a month ago, I was having my car repaired in another city. And uh, this young man is about 35 years old, and uh, he was having his new Porsche uh, repaired in some way. And we sat there for about three hours. I uh, had to wait till they got it fixed. And so we got into a conversation about he's, he'd owned several Porsches. And I said, uh, yeah, what do you do? He said, well, I was... Uh, uh, in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I said, really? Uh, and you bought these uh, Porsches from your pay as a soldier? He said, no, after the Army, I stayed on and worked for contractors. He said, I worked for a private contractor in Afghanistan for about uh, seven or eight years. And he said, a uh, person like me is a, a drive of truck mate, so I made over $200,000 a year. And I accumulated quite some wealth, you know, in the Afghanistan war as a private contractor. He said, I don't. I never told him what my views were at all. And <laughs> he said, there's no telling what the, uh, the owner of the private contractor, Halleck Burton or somebody else, Blackwater or something, no telling what they make, he said, if a truck driver can make 200000 So prolonging the agony goes into how much money can be made out of war. And uh, that's why that second book is very important also. Well, John, thanks a million, and I hope you'll come back many times and keep enlightening us about these important books that we might otherwise not know anything about and about the issues that they discuss. And uh, Judge John V. Denson, thanks a million. Thank you. Always good to be with you, Lou. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you. Thank you.